0: Well, first of all, may I say how delighted I am uh, to be able to address you this evening once again after such a, such a very long absence. And it's wonderful to see there are still many familiar faces uh, in sight. And after that, I would just like to thank particularly, of course, Father Stafke for inviting me to come and to give me this opportunity of having a, a little nostalgia trip. So thank you very much indeed uh, for that, Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. I now, I think you've seen and uh, advertised that uh, this mission is going to be about the seven words from the cross. But just before we actually uh, examine the words of our Lord, let's first of all consider in general the purpose of having a mission at all and, and of having a mission uh, during Lent, and more specifically, of course, during Passion Tide. Why are we doing this? So I think that it only makes rational sense if we go right back to the very beginning. The beginning of history, in fact. In the very, in the very beginning, God made man. More specifically, he made man, male and female. Imagine, just a a few years ago, that was non-controversial. Now that's become controversial. Isn't the world going crazy? God made man, and he made man for a purpose. And he made man to know, love, and to serve him. And St. Augustine, of course, famously says, that thou hast made us, O Lord, for thyself, and our hearts cannot rest until they rest in thee. So from the beginning until now, That's really all that we've got to know and to live by. And had our first parents not gone astray, we would have a life of eternal bliss and felicity over and beyond what they enjoyed because God remembered that although God made them to live in a perfect world, in a paradise on earth, He actually made them for something higher, for a higher, a greater union with Him on condition that they lived life in accordance with his holy will. And sadly, of course, they failed and they committed sin. And sin has disrupted everything ever since. Now, what is sin? Sin is, of course, sin. I think in the, in the, I think the, 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 the normal catechism answer is sin is a, a transgression of the law of God. Which, of course, is absolutely correct. But it's actually, it doesn't really tell you much apart from the fact that it's disobedience. But in what way is that disobedience expressed? Well, somebody or other, I think, I think one of the scholastics in the Middle Ages came up with another definition of sin, which I think is actually more helpful. But it says that it's a, in, in Latin, it sounds very grand. Don't you think sounds grand in Latin, isn't it? It's aversio adeo et conversio ad creaturas. It's the turning away from God to his creatures. Just like, for example, Adam and Eve preferred, or we take as preferring the symbol of the apple. I mean, it's not a sin to eat an apple, obviously. The sin was to prefer their own will as expressed by choosing that particular creature. And it's a, such a tragedy because it was the only thing that God, God told them not to do. They could do whatever they liked. He said, God said, it's all yours, the whole thing, it's yours, do what you like. Or they just don't do this one thing. But that was too much for them. They wanted to enjoy paradise on earth on their terms. Now that is the actual point of the thing. We are all now fallen. God has restored us. He has died for us. He has restored our union of friendship with him, but he still decided to leave us in this veil of tears with the perpetual test, just like they had a test, the same test, only sadly (laughs) the creatures now extend to a much wider selection than than theirs, of what are we going to choose? Are we going to choose the will of God or ourselves expressed in our preferring the creatures that he has made? And not only the creatures he's made outside of us, are we going to actually prefer our favorite creature, which is ourselves, <laughs> isn't it? It's ourselves. God wills, He's made us for Himself, but we want to live for ourselves. Now, this has been constantly, th- constant throughout the whole of history. It's, and it's really, really, really accentuated today in the cult of self, the worship of self, the worship of one's identity. There was a little ditty that I picked up from somewhere. I can't remember where now. It said, I lived for myself. I thought for myself. Myself. And self alone. Just as if Jesus had never lived. And as if he had never died. That's what the world wants to do. Now, Please God, thank God, he has removed us from this wicked world. But we are nevertheless surrounded by all sorts of temptation, by being drawn constantly to creatures. And if we don't actually sin by offending his use of these creatures, because this disordinate attachment to these creatures is disordinate in when it's out of Focus when it's an exaggeration, when it's an excess. Everything that God's made is good. He said so. So there's no question about everything is good. The thing is it becomes bad for us because we make it bad for us by our excessive attachment to it over and beyond what God wills. And so that even if good people like us, I well, hope anyway, we don't commit any very, very serious sins, at least anyway, not on a regular basis, we nevertheless because of our fallen nature because of the state of our uh, of our life here below when so many things are urgent not important but urgent <laughs> you know, there are so many things every day that we've got to do we've got to get through we've got to get done we know that they're not really urgent important they're not as important as our salvation but they're urgent, so we've got to do them. And we become out of focus. We we become too uh, too absorbed in things which are secondary in our life. It's inevitable, almost inevitable in our former state. Which is why we've got to have a link. We've got to have a link uh, to re- every year. And every year, because once is not enough. Every year, we've got to refocus on what it's all about. So that's exactly what we are trying to do now this evening. We're trying to refocus on what it's really all about. It's that union with God, that turning away from creatures, turning away from creatures insofar as they draw us away from God's will and plan for us. Not even, they need not even be particularly sinful. I think it's highly significant that at the beginning of Lent, on the first Sunday of Lent, the church chooses for the gospel the temptation in the desert. We see that our Lord's tempted by the devil. And what's he tempted to do? He's tempted by all the things that we are tempted. He's tempted but to, to turn stones into bread. That's to say, to look after himself, to look after his comfort or his physical needs, over and above the plan that his heavenly father had for him, for his self glory, by throwing himself off of the pinnacle of the temple, or being able to have power and influence by being offered the kingdoms of the world. Now, there's much to learn from these temptations, but do notice, you know, I'd like to insist on tonight that none of them were actually sinful. It's not sinful for God to stay, for our Lord to change stones into bread. Heaven's sakes. I mean, God sent bread, bread from heaven in the, uh, uh, by Moses in the desert. Our Lord multiplied bread and fed 5,000, 4,000. It wasn't sinful. It was, it was, Satan's is very subtle. It wasn't actually sinful. But it was, get this job of being the Messiah done without too much discomfort, really. <laughs> don't, don't go in for all this penance and stuff because you, can, you don't have to do that. Why I bother? I mean, you, 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 can, you can do this. It's the same with us. Now, of course, our Lord, our Lord being tempted to throw himself off the temple is another category of sin for us. I mean, that would be a sin if Satan tempted us to do that, but it's not. It's not a sin for God to do that. <laughs> God's not. He's not bound by the laws of gravity, and the uh, you know God appears and all, uh, or his angels appear in all sorts of extraordinary circumstances. You know, they defy gravity, they float around, and they. Our Lord himself went went through doors and walls <laughs> after Easter. There's nothing sinful about that. But it would have been sinful for him. It's a sort of court popularity. Get people on your side, not because of your hard teachings and all that. People don't want that kind of thing. People want entertainment, really. That's what the church has been like now for the last 50 years. You can't expect people to come to a church just to say their prayers and adore God. Oh, yawn, yawn, yawn. You've got to make it entertaining for them. And if you want to have an influence, you've got to be like a superstar. I mean, that's what's happened to the church. That's what's happened to the papacy. That temptation, and it's a, it's a deadly temptation, and it continues now right, right, right to this day. And then, of course, obviously, to be rich, wealthy, powerful, it's not a sin. Many of the saints have been rich, wealthy, and powerful, and glorious. The friends of God, King David, Solomon, well, they were, well, Solomon was a friend of God. I mean, God made him rich and mighty and powerful likewise. So it's not so much the thing in themselves, it's what we do with it. And therefore, every Lent, I think we've got to, we've got to refocus on that because time's running out. For most of us, it's a, it's a work of an, it's a work of a lifetime. It's a work of a lifetime to conform our will, our mind and our heart to Almighty God. To f- deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow our Lord. Our Lord says, "If we cannot be His disciple, unless we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him." Now, what does that mean? That, um, clearly, it doesn't mean to say that we are, we risk a, uh, being actually physically nailed to a cross. It's pretty obvious now, in a way that it wasn't even the last time that I saw you. Uh, it's pretty obvious now that persecution is coming for us. Real persecution. It's unavoidable, the way things are the wings are going now. But I doubt very much if they're actually going to introduce actual physical crucifixion. I don't think that's likely to happen to us. So I think that when our Lord says that we've got to be crucified, it means not so much on, the, on a physical cross, but on the cross of our mind and the cross of our soul. Because for most of us, for all of us, to do anybody else's will, even the will of God, is a crucifixion. It's a denial. It's to deny ourselves. And for that monster, that's hard because we all want our own way. We want everything on our own terms. And we want salvation on our own terms. I mean, what's the whole modernist crisis? Why, why did modernism become so popular? Are you going to tell me that people were really interested in theological questions? that they were interested in different interpretations of, I don't know, religious freedom or ecumenism and all that kind of thing. I don't think anybody was really interested in that. It was all easier. It was all much, much, much easier. It was less difficult to such a degree that even sin now is fine. You know, the the, the, the Pope said people don't even have to turn away from their sinfulness. You shouldn't even tell them they're committing sin. Just accompany them on their journey. Well, what journey are they on? If they're sinners, they can only be going to hell. The last place you want to accompany them on their journey is to hell. I mean, this is child's stuff. And And you've got the Vicar of Christ speaking in these insane, mad terms. It's complete lunacy. And these are the days in which we are living. And of course, inevitably, all—I mean—it rubs off on us without us realising it. We become inured to all sorts of all things, things that should have been unspeakable, unthinkable a very short time ago. Now, well, that's how it is. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and sigh, and what can you say? Oh, what can you do? You can't do that, right? But at the same time. It all becomes, you know, we get gradually. So we, we've got to really renew a, uh, our fervor and renew uh, our devotion, which is which is all what, what it's about. Because if we're not careful, and I say this with fear and trembling, because I, <laughs> I'm an old man myself now without beyond that, time is definitely running out. It's running out fast. Here's another, here's another little poem, uh, which, uh, which, which, which I think is charming, uh, which uh, um, you may have heard or not. And, it, and it, it sums it up. I think these little these little, these little, uh, these little things kind of focus on the mind, it express our, our experience. How does it go? It goes, When as a child I laughed and wept, time correct then as a youth i grew more bold time strode when i became a full grown man time ran <laughs> as daily as older i daily grew Time Lou <laughs> Soon I will find in passing on time gone. O oh God, wilt thou have saved me then? Amen. <laughs> That's a question. O oh God, will thou have saved me then? <laughs> Hopefully. Yes, Amen. So I think that during during these days, this is what this is what we got to strive to, to do—not to be arrested by by things which appeal to the the secondary things of our life, but refocus that on that which is absolutely and truly and truly essential. So. We are meant to be following our Lord on the way of the cross. This is Passion Tide. We're reaching the end of Lent. And uh, we wish to consider the sufferings of our Lord uh, during his sacred Passion. And of course, there are many things that we can, uh, that we can uh, consider. And we often consider the various and appalling sufferings which he underwent. The very physical sufferings which he underwent. But oftentimes we don't focus so much on the interior sufferings which he underwent on the cross. What was going on in his mind? What was going on in his soul? Well, he's given us he's given us an insight into that by the seven words which he spoke from the cross. These these words, which are, of course, sentences, in fact, reveal his innermost state of soul at the time of his crucifixion, therefore at the time of his death. Uh, Therefore we can take them as being his last will and testament. And they reveal to us How we should be, and particularly how we should be when we've reached, hopefully reached, the end of our course in union with Him. So, just before we actually consider these things individually, let's just remind ourselves of the context in which they were, in which they were spoken. So, when they came to the place they crucified him there. And the robbers, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and Jesus in the midst. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, with the wicked he was reputed. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first word. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then the soldiers, after they had crucified him, took his garments, and they made four parts to every soldier apart, casting lots upon them, what every man should take, and also his coat. Now, the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said then to one another, Let us not cut it, but let us cast lots upon it, whose it shall be, that the word might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, They have parted my garments amongst them, and upon my vesture they have cast lots. And the soldiers indeed did these things. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And they sat down and watched him, and the people stood beholding. And they that passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, They, thou that destroyest the temple of God, and in three days buildest it up again, save thy own self. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. In like manner, the chief priests with the scribes and the ancients mocking derided him, saying, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be Christ, the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe. He trusted in God, let him now deliver him, and we will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the soldiers also mocked him coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the selfsame thing, the thieves that were crucified with him, reproached him and reviled him. And one of these robbers, who was hanging, blasphemed him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. And the other answering rebuked him, saying, Neither dost thou fear God, seeing that thou art under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done no evil. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Then Jesus said to him, the second word from the cross. Amen, I say to you, that this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, they stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing whom he loved, he said to his mother, next word. Woman, behold thy son. And after that he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Third word from the cross. Women, behold thy son, behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Fourth word, which is meaning... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood there and heard said, Behold, this man called for Elias. Afterwards, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, Next word, I thirst. Now, there was a vessel there set full of vinegar. And immediately one of them, running, took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed about hyssop and offered it to his mouth, and gave it to him to drink. And others said, Stay, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down and deliver him. When Jesus, therefore, had taken the vinegar, he said, Sixth word, It is consummated. It is finished. And Jesus then, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hand, I commend my spirit. Seventh word. And seeing this, bowing down his head, he gave up the ghost. Right, so these are the last words of Jesus, the last recorded words of Jesus, the last words he t- his, uh, before, his uh, before, before his death. Before, uh, And so they've got a, a great significance for us. So, almost everything. That, uh, that, that anyone might say, however trivial, always seems to take on a, an immense significance when they die, and especially if they've been of, uh, of significance uh, to us, and, 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 that we, and that we love them. So, let's first of all examine the first word. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first words of the sacred passion, which appear to have been pronounced at the very beginning of our Lord's agony on the cross, when he'd been nailed to the cross and he'd been lifted up, his first words were words of forgiveness. Now we've got to to examine these words because they are profoundly uh, significant when when they're spoken by, by our Lord. They've got a, a, a significance which is well beyond any words of forgiveness that we might pronounce. The very essence of our Lord's being was to forgive. That's why He came into the world. He was come to redeem the world, and to redeem the world by forgiving the world. He, uh, and everything about about His life was a, was a, uh, was revolved around that. It was, it was the very, very purpose of his life, and it is, above all, the very purpose of his death, because it's by the expiation of the cross that our sins are forgiven. And everything about our Lord's life has got to be imitated by us, likewise. Now, it's very significant, of course, that at the end of our laws, when he forgives, he, he, he says, forgive them. But he, ought, and he teaches us how to die, that we must we must imitate that forgiveness in our own lives. Because he sets it as the pattern of our life as well as his. Remember, on another mount, our Lord died on one night, mount, mount Calvary, he set out the divine law, the new law of the New Testament on another mount, on Mount Hattin, and the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount is very long. We don't have time to go into all of that, the, the details of that. But think about how he, on that occasion, taught us how to pray. The only prayer that he taught us, one prayer, the Our Father, was very, 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 very significant. And when you analyze it, it's—it's. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not significant just because our law taught it. It's significant because uh, because of what it is. And when you analyze it, it becomes even even more significant. It's a prayer of petition. If you think about it, it's a prayer of petition whereby we ask God to do things. Our Father, You're in heaven. It sounds in English that they we're giving Him a command, but it's not. It's it's a subjunctive. It's we're we basically nip. May your name be made holy. Uh, of course, we've got to make his name holy, but he gives us the grace to do it. May your name be made holy. Holy be thy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We ask God to take all the action, except, except, forgive us our trespasses. We add to it, as we forgive them that trespass against us. Have you ever thought of that? It's really strange. And if that wasn't strange enough, it's immediately underlined in capital letters, because after the prayer, our Lord says, for... If you do not forgive their their trespasses against you, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. But if you do forgive their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. Wow. Wow. That's really, (sighs) and it's, I mean, it's such a, it's such a demand. It's something which is well i mean it's all, it's supernatural it's 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 all, quasi impossible i would say in a state of pure nature you to be able to do that but god but that seems to be the main response that God requires from us. He has forgiven us when we didn't deserve it, <laughs> and so we have got to forgive all with all injury or sometimes all perceived injury against us i mean he insists, on, he, 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 he insists on this also on the same sermon on the mount. he said you have heard what is said of old in the old testament thou shalt love thy friend and hate thy enemy makes sense <laughs> but i say to you love your enemies uh oh wait a minute <laughs> I mean, the very fact that they are enemies means that they're essentially unlovable. Love your enemies, do good to them that, that, that hate you, pray for them that persecute and revile you, that you may be, but why, why should you got to do it? That you may be the children of your father, like God, who maketh his sun to shine upon the good and the bad, and, the, and his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Wow. This this notion of forgiveness is not what we normally think as being God's essential attribute, but it is. And it is is that which, is that also which marks off his followers. I would say it's also that which marks off Christianity as being unique amongst all the other religions of the world. I don't believe that any other preachers, at least to the same degree, this total self-sacrificing forgiveness. It's truly, truly supernatural. And I mean, time and time again, our Lord insists on it. Even when people don't actually ask for it, remember the paralytic who was lowered through the roof because he wanted, he wanted to be cured of his paralysis. Our Lord, our Lord says, never mind about your paralysis. I, I, your sins are forgiven. Oh, that's that all? <laughs> he wanted to get up and walk. <laughs> you see, because like us, he wanted the secondary goods. But again, he, and, and of course, he, he was cured. He was, he, was, he was cured of his illness as well. I mean, the, the, the forgiving, the, the forgiveness, of the, the adulterous, the adulterous woman, after the resurrection. What? This is, this is this is amongst the last words that our Lord said before he died. Well, the first words that he said after the resurrection, what did he say? Well, amongst the first, not exactly the first, when he when he appeared when he appeared in the Seneca, when he appeared in the upper room on on Easter night, he said, "Peace be with you." Now, peace is the result of order, and therefore the result of reconciliation. And peace to them who had betrayed him. Remember, uh 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 uh. That's the first time they seen him after their betrayal, and his first words were peace. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Receive the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins you shall retain, they retain. It's immediately again about forgiveness. Immediately about him forgiving them, and immediately about them, at least in their official capacity as, as priests, to forgive, or, or to transmit that forgiveness to others. It's an astonishing thing, really. It's a remarkable thing that, that Christ lives and dies loving his enemies. And he's so generous to them. Look what he says. He doesn't just say, forgive them. He says, forgive them because they know not what they do. Ah. You've only got to read the Gospels. It's blindingly obvious they did know what they did. They would have been planning it for ages. They've been planning it almost since the very beginning. At least the worst of them were planning it from from ever our Lord appeared on the scene. Read the Gospel of St. John particularly. It's all particular it's all highlighted. They plotted his death. They even timed it. They were going to have it after the Passover when they thought it would be easier. It was only because, unfortunately, our law was betrayed before the Passover that they seized, their, they seized their opportunity. It was all. Everything about it was planned. They knew what they were doing. They brought in false witnesses. False witnesses. Where did they get the false witnesses from? I presume that they crossed their palms with silver, like Judas, the same thing. They planned the whole thing. And, and, and they're not sorry for it either. I mean, look what we've just read. They, well, after they committed the crime, after the crime was done, when they were looking at him hanging on the cross, I mean, we're pretty bad. But I mean, I imagine if you or I were responsible for somebody dying on a cross, we'd think, oh my, what have I done? This is a terrible thing. It's my fault. That man's innocent. Look at the te- No, no, not then. They laughed. They mocked. They jeered him. It's astonishing, really. It's amazing, and it's got it, 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 it's got an enormous significance. And I mean, what is that significance? I mean, the the it's a. Uh, it, I think the, the significance is that the evils that befall us even deliberately inflicted evils are part of God's plan for us. We resent them. We think it's terrible. We feel aggrieved. We are innocent. Why does God We say, how has this happened to me? What have I done to deserve this? What did Jesus do to deserve it? <laughs> I mean, we deserve... Uh, not maybe necessarily the specific injustices and so on that we suffer, but we deserve some of it. I mean, we've committed so many bad things ourselves that there's got to be some kind of a balance, if God's just at all. So we've got to accept our crosses, that even the ones which seem to us to be insignificant, how often does it happen? I mean, it's, sometimes, the worst, sometimes the worst things in life are only apparently the worst things in life. And if that seems strange, I mean, it's not. I mean, I mean, that's one thing that our religion teaches us. That some of the worst things have got a positive element to them. Because God's plan is never totally frustrated. For example, original sin. Original sin, which brought all the evils that we suffered, everybody suffered ever since the world began, can out actually to be quite a good thing? I mean, I would I would hardly dare to say so, but of course the little says so. You know, in a couple of days, in, in, in a few days' time, at the Easter Vigil, we'll be, be singing to the Paschal candle, happy, happy fault, happy fault, which has resulted in a, uh, in, in in Christ becoming becoming a, 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 a redeemer. There's a lovely Christmas carol, There's a lovely Christmas card called uh, "Adam Was Abandoned." I won't sing it to you. It's a it's a lovely song. It's a, it's exquisitely lovely. It's all about Adam brought all this evil upon us, just by eating an apple. Isn't that pathetic? That we've had four th- we, we we had four thousand years of agony just all, I, I, all it was all for an apple that he took, just an apple, and he brought all that evil. But it ends on saying, blessed be the day that he ate that apple. Had he never eaten that apple, Our Lady would not be the Queen of Heaven. Isn't it really exquisitely lovely? What was the greatest crime of history? The greatest crime of history, obviously, was the crucifixion of our Lord, which we're speaking about. The greatest crime of history. Paradoxically, turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> now, we, we, that's what, that's what we've, got to, we've got to try to see that God's plan is never really frustrating for us, so that we can tr- truly see that our enemies really don't know what they're doing, because like the high priests who condemned our Lord to death, who planned it all, they didn't actually know what they were doing. They were actually <laughs> bringing about. The unfolding of God's plan for the redemption, even although it was a genuine crime, it doesn't, it doesn't elevate, it doesn't eliminate their crime. So look at that! Isn't that that's that's, that's surely a strengthening thing? And, and when we get older, especially when we get older, when we look back on our life and we see things which happen, very sad and unfortunate things that happened to us which seemed catastrophic, and mean we we, we we could never get over it, we see that God's loving hand was in it and did, in fact, see us through and saw us through as better people, even just on the human level, as more mature, uh, uh, more wise than we were beforehand. And everything, strangely, everything which is lovely and beautiful, demand—it's always got it's always got an element of, uh, it's always got an element of, Sadness in it, you know. It, 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 no matter what it is, even the very best things in life, you know. We speak about we speak we speak about the agony and so on of following our Lord on the way of the cross. But it's not a question of falling. You either choose to follow our Lord on the way of the cross and be crucified and have an awful time, or you don't, and you have a lovely time. You have a happy time. If you're not a Christian, that's another illusion, nowadays. People seem to think if they get rid of Christianity, it's all going to be lovely. Because all the problems in the world come from having a guilty conscience. Really. Now, if you didn't have a guilty conscience, you'd be perfectly happy. So, this evil church, or, or, or even or almost any religion, really, which teaches right and wrong, we don't want anything to do with that because it makes us feel uncomfortable, it makes us feel unhappy. If everything's allowed, well, you know, you're know, you not going to have that problem, and everybody will be very happy, there'll be no... It's nonsense. They, 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 everything in life has got a negative side. Somebody said, I think it's a paraphrase of the book of Job, that... Man is born to suffer, as birds are made to fly. It's inevitable. I mean, everything. I mean, look at the king. I mean, even Satan's temptations—they're interesting too, because he tempts us to things which actually can cause us anxiety: turning stones into bread, our well-being, our health. How many people are hypochondriacs? They're constantly thinking about their health. but are afraid that we're going to lose our health. We, even if how, how healthy we are, apart from anything else, we're going to get old and frail, whether we like it or not, no matter how much exercise or dieting or good food that we eat. I mean, it's always going to, it can't, it can't last. It's impossible. Reputation, honour, power, uh, it, 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 it can't last. It, it, if we live long enough, it, it, fades, it fades away. I mean, it's just, it's just inevitable. We, we become forgotten. Even the most famous people become forgotten in their own sphere. I don't know, like actors, actresses—they become too old, too ugly, something, something like that. Footballers, all the kind of people that people worship. You know, people worship footballers if they're going to be you know, twenty-five forever, or, or actresses. the same thing. I mean, even the great and the mighty of the world, especially in the twentieth century, you see how how precarious the whole question of Politics, sir. I mean, look at these great uh, monarchs of the uh, in Europe, the uh, last century, who were, I mean, they, they were their families had been ruling for centuries. They were, they, their position was unquestionable, and gener- generally they were loved, revered by the vast majority of their subjects. And they came crashing down in nobody's, absolutely nobody's, despised, rejected. <laughs> Happens overnight. <laughs> The kingdoms of the world. Our kingdoms of the world. You might spend all your life in in building up your bank balance and so on. But look at this now. There could be an an economic crash tomorrow. It all becomes worthless. And all these things, they've they've all got an element of anxiety in them. Even the most, I mean, and even if nothing happens, they're all going to pass away. So, (laughs) and then what? You know, even the loveliest, even the loveliest things in life, which is surely the love that we have for each other. The love that we have for our friends and, of course, above all, the love that we have for our spouse. There's nothing more beautiful, more elevating than uh, falling in love and uh, walking down the aisle. And it makes the whole world happy. Everybody's happy to see a lovely, you know, a, a wedding. It kind of... Pets you up and it gives you confidence in human nature that people are going to commit themselves to that. But when they get to the altar, what do they say? It's singularly unromantic. I mean, it's devastatingly depressing to say, I take you to be my wedded wife for better or worse. Worse, imagine even mentioning the word worse. Richer or poorer, sickness and health. I give you a blank check to do what you like till death do us part. That's, that's, I mean, but if it's done, and of course, unfortunately, it's a two-way contract, so you can't you can have sad cases where one partner does it and the other doesn't. But if they, if they both do it, it's, it's one of the best, but it always, it's always going to have, it cannot fail to have, elements of negativity. It assumes that there are going to be elements of negativity. In other words, you wouldn't have to make any reference to, to worse or better or richer or poorer. It's taken for granted. Nothing, even the best, even the most sublime things are thus. So, we've got to try to see in the in, in the cross of Christ, which is our sharing in his cross, the positive and of course it's it's, it's 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 relatively easy to speak about it and to uh, and to conceptualize it like I'm doing now i'm not very good at actually putting this into practice as you those of you who know me well enough know it's, it's that's <laughs> it's a struggle for everybody no matter how much you 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 you, know, you think about it or how much you in reality but if we don't if we don't if we don't appreciate it and we don't, don't appreciate that Really, everything must be turned to the good. It's our triumph over the world. That's why the faith, our faith gives us, it's a victory over the world. Because it's not just that, I don't know, we'll be all right with God at the end and everybody else will be sent to hell or something like that. No. It's a, it's a, it's a total victory of everything in our life. Elevates absolutely, if you really live it and believe, not just believe it, but live it. Then it elevates, it elevates everything. And you know, as we say, our Lord's, our Lord's life is the, um, is the example and the exemplar of ours. So, so uh, notice what he says too. He, he, he doesn't say, doesn't say, I forgive you. Didn't say, I forgive my enemies. I forgive you all. It's okay. Never mind. I forgive you all. Done. He? he said, Father, forgive them. Even that, I think, has got a very, very, very profound significance. Because, of course, he and his father are one. So, of course, and he's God. So, of course, he could have said, I forgive you. But because his life is the pattern of our life, we might think that we can say, I forgive you. Which, of course, we should say. But isn't it got an element of. Um, it's, a declaration, it's a declaration of one's own innocence, isn't it? So if I forgive you, you're the guilty party, not me. <laughs> I'm the one doing the forgiving. But the trouble is that all the injustices that we suffer, we do deserve at least a part of it. And very often, very often in, 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 in injuries, we act often after we bring them upon ourselves. Because we, you know, especially in interpersonal disputes, there's, there's always a two sides of every story, as we say. There may be one the person who, on the whole, is guilty, and on the whole is innocent, but there's generally always, not always, but always, in all human things, really. I think that, interestingly enough, the only the only situation that I can think of, anyway, that we suffer in a manner where we are truly innocent is when we suffer not because of us, but we suffer because of Christ. If we are persecuted, the whole world has got to carry its cross, whether it likes it or whether it doesn't. We've got to get the cross. It's an illusion to imagine otherwise. And that's why these people are living in illusion and a state of fantasy. And we all suffer it generally has some relationship to our own lack of focus. It's only when we suffer innocently as Christ suffered because as Christians, we are going to suffer on top of it. It's in that sense only that Christians are going to have a harder time than everybody else because of their association with the innocence of Christ. So, I think, I, th- I think, I think, I think that that's the, uh, that's the, uh, that's the, um, that's a, amazingly, oh my goodness me, I've spoken for an hour. I think it's, it's amazingly a, uh, significant a, uh, for our life. And, it, and then it moves on to the next word, which I, I won't mention tomorrow night. It moves on almost seamlessly from forgiveness to the, the next word. uh, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. But we shall consider that tomorrow. So thank you very much for your attention.